You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's open in prayer. Father, you left nothing aside when you decided how to equip your church for the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit, for the word to go forth and to make disciples and to be used by your Holy Spirit to turn those whom you have elected to you and by your grace to cause them to day by day work out their salvation with fear and trembling, becoming more like the Son, recognizing every day they are less like the Son. Lord, it's a, it's a tension that you've created, and we thank you for it. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to look into it again. We thank you that it, it is what sanctifies, and we thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is because of him and for him we thank you this morning. We ask you to bless this time now that we might, give, that we might have more wisdom to live for you. And it is in your name and for his sake we pray. Amen. So, a couple of weeks ago, before I went down to... Did you all know that the Metroplex of Boise now has 600,000 people? And I think I saw all of them while I was down there. And No, actually, there, for a while at least, there were a bunch of them that self-identify as Republicans, but you know how that is. So, when we, when we left, we were at... Um, in 1 Corinthians, we were at verse 28. So let's read from chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14, chapter 14, from 20 to the end of the chapter. Verse 20 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 40. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. If, therefore, the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophecy... And an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, and he is convicted by all, enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? What, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God, and let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets." For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, 
Let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. So when we left off last week, we were discussing, or last two weeks ago, we were discussing the outcomes of what happens when an unbeliever or a believer comes into a body where everyone's speaking in tongues or people are prophesying. And remember, for our purposes, as we understand the word prophesy, it primarily refers to the exposition, the proper exposition of God's word. There are two components of prophecy. One is the the most important one, which you'll see the ancient especially prophets doing, is holding up God's word and saying, okay, king, this is what the word of God says. This is what you're doing. What are you going to do about it? Well, we're going to throw you in jail. That's what we're going to do. And so that's what the main job of prophets was. They're secondary and is just as important, but used primarily during the times of revelation when God was doing a new thing, were to predict the future, were to talk about out what was coming. And so during the, reign, during the time of Moses and Joshua, there was an outbreak of such. During the time of the Elijah, Elisha and Elijah, there was again um, foretelling as well as prophesying the future. And then during the time of the apostles, in order to substantiate and authenticate God's message, prophecy had a futurist component. Uh, Agabus occasionally would give a, a prophecy, and especially what we have in recorded in Acts was prophecies about the ministry of the Apostle Paul and things that were to come to pass in the future. But mainly, prophecy was for the edification of the church. In fact, all of the gifts, every single one of them, primarily is designed to build up the church, to edify the believers, to strengthen, to encourage, to comfort, and to um, cause people to grow in their salvation, as it talks about in Scripture. And so in this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul is doing his very best to rein in an out-of-control group of, of people who had come out of a pagan way of worship, which was ecstatic worship, where the, someone would break forth in unintelligible speech, and everyone else, no one else understood what he was saying, but they would assume he was speaking to the gods. This was in relationship to several of the, the Greek gods at the time. And uh, this had worked its way into the church, and Paul was doing his very best. Well, actually, we, don't, we shouldn't say it that way. The Holy Spirit was giving the word to instruct the Corinthians, especially, how to properly use the gift of tongues. And Paul keeps weighing these gifts, the two that are, are most evident against each other, and he keeps lifting up prophecy and putting down tongues. Not that it's not useful. It has its place. It had its place in authenticating the, the, the apostleship of the believers at the time and the word of God at the time as the word was being compiled, but it was limited in its use. Prophecy, however, is magnificently useful all the time in edifying the church. It's done here on a weekly basis. No future telling. That's not our responsibility now. That will come again in the future. But right now, the prophetic word is expositing God's finished, sustainable, perfect, effective word of God and finishing or helping believers to live to the best that they can by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. 
So, in verse 23, he said, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men, that's believers who are not yet instructed, or unbelievers enter, won't they say that you're mad? If there's a bunch of people speaking in languages that no one but maybe one or two understand, they would think they were mad. And then if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. Now, bear in mind, Paul is assuming in these two verses that these two gifts, tongues, and prophecy would be being used according to his refrigerator list, two or three at the most, in order, with an interpreter for, for tongues, and two or three prophetic utterances in order, and we'll see how that works. So, yes, in many cases, I don't think it's a sin. It's unlearned. They're unlearned. They're untaught. But there are plenty of people who know better, plenty of people who know better, and they are using this in, in a... In a a monetary way, if you will, in a controlling way. Um, but in many cases, it's not. I don't think it's a sin. I think it's people who are going along to get along. Uh, so that's more of a, uh, a sin of omission, I guess you could call it. In many cases, though, it's, it's simply unlearned, unwilling to, to put the time in to understand what the gift of tongues was about, why it was so important at the time, and how it was used. And all of us are guilty of that. Sometimes we, we don't put the time in studying God's word to understand something fully. It doesn't mean we're sinning. It means we're lazy. So if you want to call laziness a sin, then I guess we could come full circle around to that and say it's possible. But I would be more likely, a lot of these folks that I knew when, when, I, when I first started going to church, I went to my wife's church, which was a charismatic church. And, and uh, good people, believers there, no doubt about it but they were misusing this gift. Some of them, it was clear to me, were not misusing it sinisterly or intentionally to harm. They just, this is what they were taught. It's what they believed. So they do it out of In many cases, out of ignorance, yes. Uh, if once we are instructed, now we're held accountable, yes. But if you're ignorant of something, you don't know that you're doing it wrong. I don't know how many times I've done ignorant things in my life that other believers were gracious enough to call me to account for, and it's still damaging. Um, I can ignorantly not change the brakes on my vehicle for 200,000 miles, and somebody may die because of that, but I wasn't trying to kill them. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. So in this case, Paul is talking about especially the abuse of the gift because he keeps reminding them, I spoke in tongues more than you all. Do we find any place in Scripture anecdotally where Paul says, and while we were in Thyatira, I broke forth in ecstatic utterance in Apollos translated. Do we find that? That is significant. There's, it's, in, it's instructive to us that Paul was dealing with a misuse of this that seemingly none of the other churches were having much of a problem with. This was because, as I mentioned earlier, in this particular area of uh, that, the continent, there were plenty of pagan worship services that had this very thing embedded in it, and it had come into the church. So then he says, but if all prophesy, and an unbeliever, that's a, a obviously word, an, or an ungifted man, that's one that's uninstructed yet, an ignorant person, enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all, and all of us can testify of coming to church Sunday morning, Sunday school Sunday morning, and something that the Spirit used in the Word of God, not in the speaker, but in the Word of God, convicted us. And we either had to change our behavior or face the consequences of not changing it. That's what he's talking about here. He is convicted. He is called to account by all. 
The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. And then Paul says, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up, for edification. And if there was a, a sign word or a, a, a cornerstone word in this section of the scripture in 1 Corinthians 14, it's edification. Everything should be done to bless the body, to help the body along, to minister to the entire body, to minister to everyone. <clears throat> and so uh, now from verse 26 to verse 40, Paul will lay out specific rules for this unruly church so that they can get their worship services back in order. In the first 25 verses of this chapter, indeed in the first 13 chapters, including the love chapter of this book, Paul has laid a foundation for these next verses and for one of the most remarkable chapters in the entire Bible, at least in my estimation, 1 Corinthians 15, which is a treatise on the resurrection, the most remarkable and wonderful thing that's ever happened in the history of the universe. But we'll get to that. I don't want to steal my own thunder here. He will end this section reminding them to let all things be done properly in an orderly manner. When they assembled for public worship, there would be singing, and the song, the words for song here would refers most likely to an Old Testament psalm put to music. There were instruments involved in singing. There would be teaching, potential revelations, and tongues with interpretation. But again, Paul stresses all of these things. The singing, the teaching, the prophecy, and the tongue as interpreted must be done for the building up of the entire body. Let us consider these things in our worship today, we mentioned last time, that we are certain that our songs and that our teaching and preaching are scriptural, that they are biblically founded and they are accurate, and that they are for the benefit of everyone in the body. Correct. It was a language. It wasn't. In the pagan, in the pagan assemblies, it was babbling. And, and, it was, and it was accompanied by rolling on the floor and, and, and things that looked like they were on meth. No. No, that was not to, and that was not to be in the church. But in the church, it was for the benefit of unlearned or ungifted people in the, in the, in the body who un, did not understand the spoken language. This is what happened in Acts chapter 2. When the Peter and the apostles spoke, the men in that audience and women in that audience heard that in their own language. That's what it was for. It was to spread the gospel as widely as, possibly, as possible, as quickly as possible. It was for the edification of everybody in that crowd, whether they spoke... Persian, uh, I don't know all the language of the days. You know, I'm, I'm not going to even, whether they spoke Spanish, I don't think there were any Spanish people there 2,000 years ago, you know. But uh, there were Latin speakers, there were Persian speakers, and various and sundry. That's what the gift of tongues is about. It's a service gift. It's a building gift. It's an amazing thing that was used at the time. It's passed away. It says that it would cease of its own accord. That's what it talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. But... For the time, it was a remarkable thing, and it was very useful in a limited way. Very useful in a limited way. There, Paul, there was a, a hierarchy of gifts. Um, tongues would be somewhere down. Useful, um, and I would think in a church that had no money, the gift of administration may not be high on the list, but the gift of helps, the gift of services, that is, um, the gift of mercy, those kinds of things would be very useful. There's going to be a hierarchy, but the important ones, 
Paul, and Paul is stressing that. One of the most important ones is obviously the gift of prophecy, which is expositing God's word so that we have the tools and the information that the Holy Spirit can use in our lives to make us more like his son. And that is so important. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying he's going to give us some rules now. So, so today we have special teaching geared for little ones, young people and adults. One of the problems in the Corinthian church was that all these things were done at the same time in a cacophony that bewildered visitors. Very little benefit would come from this noise. One of the primary responsibilities of every believer is to build each other up. Now, sometimes, again, I don't want, I'm kind of diverging here, but sometimes building each other up means calling each other to account when it's necessary. That is a building thing, whether we like it or not. It may not seem like it at the time, but when we love one another truly, and God puts us in a position of counseling someone against what they are doing because what they are doing is, is unbiblical, it's our responsibility to do that. But that's still edifying. When I was helping my sons-in-law build their homes, they both knew that I'm not a carpenter. I'm a guy who swings a hammer, and sometimes into the wrong places. One of the gracious things they would do when I would frame something up, and it was, I mean, it looked like a seagull had been there. They wouldn't mock me. They wouldn't, they would simply say, well, now here's how I'd correct that, because I knew I'd done it wrong. And so that's one of the things. We correct one another. We help one another. We're to build one another's up. So the correction that they did, having me tear out the mistake and put in the correction, built me up, taught me more about the art of construction. I'm still not very good at it, uh, which is why I'm still not a builder. But, uh, but they took the patience and the time to build me up, while at the same time having to have, I had to tear something down. So there is that aspect of building one another up. Very little benefit would come from this noise. So... We are called in Hebrews to provoke one another to love and to good works. Let's be careful how we use that word provoke, but it is an important word. We're to, to push one another into loving better and to doing good things. The Lord Jesus Christ was the example, and we, we looked at those scriptures, and it could always also be said that the tool God will always use for the building of his church is his word, his finished, perfect, sufficient word. Experiences and ideas are wonderful, but they all must be subject to the word of God. Later, Paul will point out that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. And uh, at all times, we sh during our corporate worship, our conduct, our activities, and our ministries should be subject to the word of God. Then verse 27, if anyone, here's his laundry list or his refrigerator list, if we want to call it that. If anyone's going to speak in a tongue, it should be by two or three, at the most three, and each in turn, and... One must interpret it. That implies a, pre, a careful pre-planning ahead, ahead of time. The tongue speaker and the interpreter would have gotten together and they would have worked together to bless and edify the entire body. Then verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, again implying that this has been a pre-planned thing, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and God. So what must have been happening in the church at Corinth <clears throat> was one person would break out an ecstatic speech, followed by another, followed by another with no interpretation. This resulted in chaotic services that confused the unlearned and unbelievers and contributed nothing to the edification of the body at, the, at large. If one of the members believed he had a message in a tongue, it is clear from this verse that he must have sought out an interpreter and finding none, knew that he was to keep quiet in the church and simply speak to himself and the Lord. It is very likely that there were specific believers that had the gift of interpretation, and were they not present at the church service, the tongue speakers would know that it was their time to be quiet. This was not 
a willy-nilly thing. God does not work in a chaotic manner. He works for the benefit of his people. And this gift had specific, important use, and he would not leave that to the cadences of men. He would leave it to the work of his Holy Spirit. So then, our, our furthering laundry list, and then I'll ask if there's any questions, but he says, after talking about the tongues, let two or at the most three, and let there be an interpreter. He says, regarding prophets, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. Now, Paul turns to the rules for prophets and their interaction with the body during worship. Only two or at the most three were supposed to speak during a given service. And the other prophets in the assembly were to pass judgment on the utterance. It is always important to maintain doctrinal purity, but especially at the beginning of, this, of the church, the need was paramount. Those in the body who had knowledge of the scriptures would judge what was said, determining whether or not it corresponded to the existing knowledge that God had revealed in his word. In the early days of the apostolic age, the prophetic ministry was very important. It ceased before the end of the apostolic age. We see it mentioned continuously early on, but it disappears rather quickly. There is no mention of the prophetic ministry in first speaking of the uh, future telling portion of the prophetic ministry in First in and Second Timothy or Titus, while there is considerable mention made of elders, deacons, deaconesses, and bishops. And though the prophetic ministry was the foundation of the church and is spoken of in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, it became unnecessary as the written word of God was compiled. We don't need further revelation. We have everything we need. Let me repeat that. We have everything we need. What does the word everything mean? All, that's a good, that's right in the thesaurus. Any other ideas? It's, it's perfect. The word mature. Now, I one time found a misspelling in my Bible because I'm a nerd and I look for that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. The words are a faithful translation of God's utterances through his apostles and through the Old Testament prophets. And we have at our hands, in our hands, a sufficient excellent, perfect copy of what is necessary to live the lives God wants us to live by the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives. So the prophets would speak, others would pass judgment. And what would they pass judgment with? They would use God's word. And then they would use that special spiritual judgment that God gave at the time that they had as well. Any questions about verse 29? We're going to try and finish this chapter today. Verse 30, but... If a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Can you imagine how hard it is when you think what you're saying is the second most important thing in the universe and somebody else wants to speak up? So Paul gives examples. He says, if a prof apparently if a prophet was speaking and the Lord prompted someone who was sitting with something important for the church, the first prophet was to go silent while the second would give his revelation. Order out of chaos, line upon line, specificity, understanding our relationship to one another, nobody thinking that they are the thing that the Holy Spirit is using in this age. Everybody recognizing that God uses believers. He will build his church, but he will do it through all of us. Later, Paul reminds us, reminds the Corinthians that anyone who was actually truly being used of the Lord would be mindful of proper procedure and would be self-controlled. This would ensure that it was done orderly, and if someone seated truly had a revelation that the Lord needed to get out quickly, the other would know to be silent. It's a hard thing for ego-driven alpha personalities to shut up when somebody else needs to say something. But it's an important thing. It's an important thing. So if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one 
must keep silent. Any comments about that verse? Questions? So if one of you has something important to say, I know how to shut up. My wife's still teaching me. And you know what my headstone's going to say? He was a growing Christian, but he ran out of time. Verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be exhorted. In the same way that the ministry of tongues was to be implemented sequentially and in order, so, that the, so the ministry of prophetic utterance. Whether it was foretelling the future or foretelling out of the word of God, proper principles to live by. Paul would have the prophets speak sequentially, one at a time, so that the entire body would be edified. Such was his desire in all things. The important thing, he says here, was that all would be able to learn and all would be able to be exhorted. One of the primary things that prophecy does, we'll see later and it's in other sections of scripture, is it comforts. Are you not comforted by the word of God? He writes the last chapter in every situation. He is in control. There is nothing. God never has had sweat on his upper lip, ever. Are you not comforted by that? That he is so in control of everything that he knows every outcome? And it's written here for our edification, for our exhortation, and for our comfort. And then, and then we'll ask if there's questions, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. We know why Paul had to say this. Because so many people were allowing their exuberance to, to sweep them out of control. Anytime we are swept out of control in that way, whether then or today, it is not a work of the Holy Spirit doing that. He said, there is, he said that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. There is no place biblically for disengaged ecstatic utterances. These were the things that the Corinthians were used to in the pagan rituals that they were demonic, and those were demonically inspired. That was what that was the Holy Spirit that the what the Holy Spirit would inspire was controlled, non-chaotic, useful to all, edifying the church. If it became evident that one of the tongue speakers or prophets was speaking in an uncontrolled manner, it would be known that it was not from God. God does not bypass our minds in order to speak to us or to others. So in Corinth, when the sign gifts were in full operation, God would proceed through his ministers in an orderly fashion. He is a God of order not a God of chaos. So today, when the rest of the gifts are still in operation, God will still proceed in an orderly fashion in those gifts, in all of them. So the spirits of the prophets must be subject to the prophets. Any questions or comments about that? Verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Paul's reminding the Corinthians, there's other people out there beside yourself. Remember Elijah? I am the only one. No, there are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee in this city. You're not alone, Elijah. That's a good thing to know, isn't it? That you're not alone. How many times have we charged towards City Hall only to turn around and find nobody behind us? It's nice to know you're not alone. It's nice to know that there are others in the battle with you that, as they say, have got your back. Well, in our case, the Holy Spirit has our back. What else do you need? But it's good to know others are there. So because God produces peace and confusion, peace and not confusion, were one of the prophets to speak in an ecstatic manner, it was not of God. It was Corinth, it was in Corinth that was deviating much to Paul's dismay and to their loss. Paul is advocating here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that policies that were at play, these policies were at play in other churches as well. 
Other churches were utilizing the gifts. This was not unique to Corinth. They had this idea that they were the pinnacle of the world. They were the pinnacle of spiritual evolution, if you will, and they were not. Sometimes we all struggle with that. There was a man in my life, still is, who reminds me from time to time that the Holy Spirit did fine before I came along. He did just fine. And, that it's, and there are certain people that can do that, that can say that to you, and certain people that can't. And uh, at any rate, sometimes it's necessary to do that, remind one another. God is a God of confusion, not a God of confusion, but he is a God of peace, as in all the other churches. God is a God of peace. Any questions? So I'm thinking we're going to skip over the entire next section. <laughs> no, we're not. No, we're not. And I welcome questions. Um, you can ask Jim tomorrow. Verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. We have a tendency in our world today to judge the scriptures by our own intentions by our own good heart, by our own ideas about what is right and wrong. That is the reverse of what we need to do. What we need to do is subject everything we think, everything we believe, everything we hold dear to the scrutiny and the authority of God's word. And if it says something that we just, it just mitigates against us, then we need to figure that out. But God's word is true and every man a liar. Now, I'm going to preface this with a couple of things. If men were treating women the way they should, this section would be so easy, it would be a breeze. If men were, were taking their responsibility to be teachers and they were studying God's word diligently, feverishly, because they wanted to communicate it to their wives and their families in an effective, accurate way, women would have much, a much easier road to, hoe, road to hoe in this section. If men we're committed to putting others first, always and every time. Building others up, serving one another, taking care of others to their own loss. Women would have a much easier time in this section. But because of the fall, because men are wicked, and I'm speaking of myself, we don't think of others first. We don't build our women up. We don't take care of them. We don't minister to them. We make them serve us. Now, I'm speaking gener generally, but that's what I see. That's what I see in this world today. That's what I struggle with. Paul is talking, he's going to be talking about how women are to, to um, conduct themselves in a worship service, in a public service. Let's do everything we can to make it so simple that it's an edification for them, a building up for them, and an encouragement for them. He says, women are to keep silent in the churches who are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law says. This particular verse has given great trouble down through the ages to the church of God. There are many different suggested interpretations, some of them fairy taleish, unbelievable. But one thing is clear. Paul was maintaining the order of authority from God to Christ to men to women. Not of value, not of worth, not of ability, not of brains but of authority. Let's remember that. He does it again in chapter 7. He does it in chapter 7 earlier. He does it in Ephesians chapter 5, in Colossians chapter 3, and in 1 Peter chapter 3. So we can look at those. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. When you turn two pages, yeah, there you go. And you're freaking out. You think you put the wrong stuff. 
Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. What for? So they could be famous, have letters after their name, make big bucks? No, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Those early apostles, those early teachers, they knew that their job was to serve the church, to build it up, to bless it, to make it a bride for Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, build up one another, just as you also are doing. Remember, as we're working through the book of Thessalonians when I get an opportunity to preach, they were an example church. They were doing these things that Paul has been mentioning. Romans chapter 14, 19. So then, Paul says to the Romans, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Philippians 2, 4. Philippians 2, 4, yeah. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And Romans 15, 2 and 3. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It should also be said here that the tool God will always use, again, for the building of his church is his word. Again, experiences and idea are wonderful. Now, we're going to look at the section that compares with this. He says in verse 34, women are to keep signing in the church. Where else is that in scripture? Where else is it taught? Is this a single place that we must hang our hat on? It is not. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 14, through 14. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was Adam, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Ephesians chapter 2, 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to, the, to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. First, or Colossians 3.18, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3.1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Barclay believes this was confined to a specific time. He says this, it was in a society like that that Paul wrote this passage. In all likelihood, what was uppermost in his mind was the lax moral state of Corinth and the feeling that absolutely nothing must be done which would bring upon the infant church the faintest suspicion of immodesty. It would certainly be very wrong to take these words out of their context and make them a universal rule for the church. I must digress from Barclay. I, if it wasn't anywhere else, maybe you could give it some credence, but the point Paul is making here is the order of submission from God to Christ, Christ to man, man to woman. But this is a confined, these are, these are interesting and wonderful scriptures that need to be commented on by the rest of scripture, by the fact that we're to serve, we're to build up, we're to care for, we're to bless, we're to encourage, even at our own expense. So many commentators believe that the phrase from 33, by the way, where he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then this section, this little phrase belongs with verse 34. As in all churches, as in all churches of the saints, let the women keep silent in the, in the, in the, in the churches. <laughs> so verse 33 would simply state, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And this would have tied up his teaching 
regarding how prophecy should be treated in the churches. Thus, Paul was saying that in all the churches, the women were not to teach men in the public worship service. If a prophet was prophesying and she misunderstood the sense or did not understand, she was to keep silent and ask her husband later at home in the public worship services. It should be noted that many of the charismatic and cultic churches of today, women are often given primary teaching positions and indeed even pastoral responsibilities. This is clearly out of keeping with scriptural truth. Clearly. There is, this is one of those clear biblical teachings that goes against the cultural grain and churches are caving in everywhere all the time because we think it's, we're imposing our ideas and we're hurting people and no, if it's God's truth, then we need to get under it. If it was like I said at the beginning, if men were truly servants, exhorting, building, caring, this would be so, so much easier to deal with, so much easier to deal with. So, Clearly, God has an order. He's been talking about order earlier, order how the prophets were to conduct themselves, how the tongue speakers and interpreters were to conduct themselves. Now he's going to talk about how the women were to conduct themselves. And we would be good to get under this teaching in such a manner that we make it a blessing to those who are under our teaching, under our responsibility. So, this is clearly out of keeping with scriptural truth that women have been given primary teaching positions and pastoral responsibilities. This is one of those clear biblical things that goes against the cultural grain, and I said churches are caving in all over. It's important to note that this is not saying that women were not able to be gifted teachers and leaders. Those gifts are simply not to be exercised over men in the services of the Christian church. End of story. Women in teaching and leading roles are found in scripture. Paul is clearly giving direction here as to how women were in to interact in the public services of the Christian church. If they desire to learn anything, verse 35, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Are we in what we consider our modern public worship service right now? We are not. We are in, starts with an S, Sunday school. Sunday school, which is a modern invention. But it's a teaching, it's a part of a, it's a teaching ministry of the church, but it is not our public worship service. So you'll notice that anybody asks questions what they want in here. You'll also notice in our public, in our public worship service in the modern Christian church, nobody asks any questions. As a matter of fact, when Jim asks a question up there, we're all afraid to answer. We're not supposed to. You can nod your head. You can shake, you can, you know, <laughs> because that's how we conduct them in this age. And it's just a choice we've made. And it's an effective one. It's, a, it's a, an expository method of, of bringing forth God's truth every Sunday morning during the public worship service. If any of us has questions, we ask afterwards. So that part of it has, made pretty, has been made pretty simple for us. But it wasn't happening here. Adding to the cacophony was, what are you talking about? How did he, why is he? The prophets weren't subject to the spirits of the prophets. The tongue speakers' spirits were not subject to their own spirit. It was all being done in a raucous cacophony that was building up no one and confusing many. And people were leaving thinking, these people are mad. These people are crazy. They're nuts. And Paul is trying to rein all of this in, in this section of scripture. So, women in teaching and leading roles, again, I, I said, are found in, in scripture. Paul is giving clear direction here as to how women are to interact in the public services 
of the wor Christian wor the worship of the Christian church. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. In keeping with Paul's admonition to remove disruption of the church, as well as his clear teaching throughout all of his epistles about the submission of women, he teaches here that there is to be interaction at home. This implies, of course, that the man is supposed to be spending time understanding God's word so that he can teach his wife and family. Often women are frustrated because the men in their lives don't seem to know anything. This is not an excuse for them to usurp the men's responsibility, but rather to pray that God would convict the men's in their lives to become more humble, godly, teachers and molders, modelers excuse me, of, Christ, of scriptural truth. When in Bible Sunday or studies or Sunday school, it's common for the interaction between men and women to occur with questions and answers. But when the church comes together for public worship, <coughs> the role of leadership is reserved to men for whatever reason that God chose. But that's what he says. And I, I can't get around that. And so I ain't going to get around that. However uncomfortable this makes people in our modern age, the true church of God must stand against the tide. They must. Because we're not helping. We're not helping by caving in to scriptural truth. Not because I'm smarter. Not because I know more. Well, it's part of the, it's part of the gathering of the church together. And so women should not be... I think, how many of you wives teach your husband every day? That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. When we are assembled, when we are assembled, the, our public worship service, and so, good point, so you just said women can ask questions. Yes, I did, but he also says women are not to instruct or to teach to stand over men in that way. So that's another section, and that's, we'll deal with that when we get to Ephesians and, P, and 1 Peter. But, so... That's where scripture comments on itself. No, women, I don't believe they should be teaching in Sunday school. Are there women in this audience that are way smarter than me? You bet. I got no problem with that. And after church, I'll ask them questions. Pat. Oh, yeah. First Corinthians 7. He gave them, they, they had to be covered. So clearly, they can, they can exposit the word. They can, and, and, and in certain cases, they can, it talks about when Joel, Joel's prophecy about the end times, they, they'll be able to speak about future happenings. But in the public worship service of the church, this is really clear. This is one of those scriptures where God says, green is green. And we go, no, 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 no. Green is kind of a bluish yellow. So like you're thinking like bar mitzvah type, 13, a boy's 13, he should be under. Yeah, probably. I guess I haven't. I, I don't think that's in our doctrinal statement. <laughs> so so that's, that's clearly wrong from Scripture. Um, as far as the age, it's pro you know, it's like one of those age, there are, there are boys like I, when I was 17, going on 12. And there are boys who are 12, 13, who are, so if I was to give a hard and fast age, and I'm not going to, please don't, don't, but it would probably be somewhere around 13. And a dad should be engaged in the Word of God and engaged with his children so that he kind of knows it's time for Joey to go into adult Sunday school. So, and the, the pastoral leadership would go, bring it. We like that. So, does that help? I mean, I don't see... I don't see that necessarily... Yeah, other than a general flavor, if you will, of scriptural teaching, that that's about the time when God decided that boys were ready to start 
doing the thing. The bar mitzvah means he comes under the law himself. That's what that word means. He's no longer under the law, under his, he's no longer uh, uh, following the law, I should say, at the behest and under the tutelage of his father. He's now himself directly to God under the law. That's what that bar mitzvah meant, essentially. And so in the same way in our society, parents should be so engaged with their children in, a, in an ideal situation. Oh, there's a unicorn in an ideal situation where they look at their young men and they go, it's time. It's time for him to be under the tutelage. And also their young women, as it talks about in Titus and, and 1 Timothy, women are supposed to be instructing these young women. That's time for them to be under a different kind of instruction. No more flannel graphs. Nothing wrong with flannel graphs. But you follow what I'm saying? So I'd like to give you a hard and fast age, but God doesn't. What's the age of marriageability? 13 is a good rule of thumb. And remember what that means. That's how big a stick you can cut to beat your wife with, right? I, who said what? Well, the, the etymology behind the idea of a rule of thumb, back during English in the 15 and 1600s, men were allowed to beat their wives, but they could not beat them with a stick any larger than the diameter of their thumb. That was the rule of thumb. Now, somebody wants to parse this message online because it's recorded and just put out sections. Razor submits, beats his wife with sticks as big as his thumb. No, gong. You know, we're not going to make it through the rest of this. So let's, let's tie this up. What is God doing here? Is It is going to become more and more difficult, especially... It's especially difficult when men in positions of responsibility are jerks, unkind, and untaught themselves. Men in these positions should be humble, godly, caring, and open, correctable, teachable themselves in an appropriate way. None of us are perfect. We all get up, put our pants on one leg at a time, and sometimes fall down doing it. We need to remember that. And there are so many women in my life that I have learned so much from. And when we get to heaven, they're going to be way up there, and I'm going to be way back here, and I'm good with that. I'll clean up after Paul's horse. They're willing to be taught themselves in an appropriate way and willing to be rebuked when that is necessary in an appropriate way. And, and we should always do in a manner that it is careful and, and responsible. When it comes to salvation and value before God, there is neither male nor female. But roles and responsibilities that God has given to men and women remain. Husbands are to be husbands, wives are to be wives, mothers, gender as well, are to be mothers, men are to be fathers, women are to be mothers, men are to be fathers. The roles and responsibilities that God has given to fathers and mothers remain. In our topsy-turvy world, people would have us believe that we are being vindictive, overbearing, and superior. If it were not scriptural, they might be correct, but the fact is, it is scriptural, the teaching and the truth that men are to be in leadership is also accompanied by the teaching and the truth that men are to be worth being in leadership. And that implies humility and service, not lording it over, pomposity and arrogance. The, these character qualities are all too true in the modern church, and they should go the way of the dodo bird. We are to suppose we are to serve one another. And the men who are in responsible positions of leadership should be characterized first and foremost by the word servant. So, any questions or comments? We went way over. But that's not saying you better not ask a question. Okay, let's pray. Father, you are so superior over us that the measurement can't be made. The ratio is, is, is infinite. And yet, you became one of us. 
so that you could die and save those whom you have elected. You could give, you the Father could give to your Son, his bride, the church. None of us deserving it. None of us worth even a speck of the blood that he shed. But yet you have done it. And we are so grateful. Help us to operate in that same way. Help us to be the kind of humble that Christ was. Never, never, we're never going to completely attain to that, but let it be our goal. By the grace of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of your word, and we thank you for both of those things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.